is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is shining. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements that we suffer. And this word defilement that Sayadaw Tejaniya uses and is, is often used really is a a translation of the word kalesa. In kalesa, in the Pali language, the, Buddha, the language that the Buddha's teachings were first um, recorded in, is literally translated as torment, that which torments the mind. So when we hear this, that it is because of some force that visits the mind that we are tormented, And we consider how much we have been tormented today, whether it's with <laughs> you know, sleepiness, dullness, restlessness, self-judgment, impatience, and all. And those are the easy ones. Um, we should we should want to understand what this all about. What, what, why do they visit the mind? How do they get a grounding in the mind? Why is it we believe them? How is it we can work with them? What's the possibilities of ever being free of them? And that's what I want to speak about tonight. Because as Sayadaw Utejaniya says, it is not you who removes these defilements from the mind. Wisdom does that job. So we should understand the difference between what, what, what he's actually saying. See, he's, he's saying, you don't, you don't remove these defilements. You can not want them. You can argue with them. You can uh, struggle with them. But that's not what removes them from the mind. It's understanding. It's wisdom. It's wise understanding <clears throat> that uproots them from the mind. So, what are the right views to hear about these visitors to the mind? What should we know about them? Now, I want to, I want to be clear that hearing the right view does not, mean <coughs> does not mean that you have established the right view in your mind. We can hear something, and we can believe it. But that only touches kind of a superficial surface of the mind. You can believe it fervently, but that doesn't have the, um, the grounding. It doesn't have the depth. It doesn't have the roots. It doesn't have the strength to overcome misbeliefs to the contrary. It's only through the development of wisdom not just belief, but wisdom, through your own experience, verified by your own experience, that is going to have sufficient strength and depth to uproot these from the mind. So we should understand that these torments that arise in the mind, they're familiar. We recognize them, we see them, because they appear as thoughts, moods, emotions, beliefs, part of the narrative of my life that are often habitual, usually reactive, and often unconscious. Yeah. They're just, you know, they're so familiar, they're familiar visitors to the mind, you know, whether it's impatience or fear or anxiety, depression, that it seems as if they are an inherent part of ourself, that they're kind of hardwired, so to speak, into the structure of self.
we should also understand that they're always rooted in delusion. And delusion is a couple of flavors. There's one, to the one, and I distinguish them this way. I call one delusion and one ignorance. Ignorance is not knowing at all. It's the kind of experience that happens when, and you've all seen it today, you're trying to pay attention, the mind wanders off into some train of thought, you're not aware that it has wandered. While the mind is wandering in this train of thought, you don't know it's wandering, you don't know what it's thinking about, you don't know how you feel about it, you don't know your gender, your age, your location, your posture, you don't know where you are, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. When that train of thought pulls into the station and stops and you get off, so to speak, and you take a look, at, look around, you can see, wow, I've been lost in thought. I have, I have been unaware of what's been going on. And yet, in that very moment of arriving back in the present moment, we can often reflectively reconstruct the entire chain of thought that we've just endured. Right? At the time it was happening, we were ignorant of it. But some capacity of the mind was recording it and reaffirming it and believing it in a way that we didn't even know about. Now we might think, well, what's the harm of that? <laughs> I wasn't even aware of it. So what? The harm is that when the mind is dwelling in that unaware state, it is reaffirming beliefs, assumptions, conditioning, reaffirming, strengthening wrong beliefs, wrong assumptions, mistaken conditioning, all kinds of torments that we've learned have buried somewhere in the mind and no, and no longer are even aware of. And yet, the more we're unaware of them, the stronger they get. And when push comes to shove and in the, in, the, in the urgency of living life and making decisions and responding to ever-changing conditions, it is those unseen assumptions, beliefs, habits, conditioning that will re react to the conditions of life before you, with your wisdom, your thoughts, your beliefs, your how you'd like to respond, have a chance to even get to the game. And so the more unaware, unconscious, ignorant we are of them, the stronger they get and the more influence they have on our life. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. We were not taught by the Buddha when we were young. We acquired all kinds of Wrong ideas, wrong beliefs, assumptions about ourselves, about each other, about the way of life, how to live, how to be happy, what happiness is, what suffering is. We, we just have a profusion, well, as Saito Bandita likes to say, multiple layers of delusion. Because they're grounded in ignorance or delusion. Now, delusion. I want to make a subtle distinction. Um, really, it's kind of an artificial distinction, but just to use two different words, delusion and ignorance. Delusion is different. Delusion is not completely unconscious. It sees what's going on. It just understands it wrongly. So that it sees something. It sees a situation. It sees a person. It sees an event within your life or in your environment. And it ascribes meaning and value to it, which it does not inherently have. And then because we, we give it value and meaning, which it doesn't inherently have, we, we are deluded by it. It casts a spell over our mind. 
And because we live in that wrong understanding, we see it, we see the person, we see the activity, we see the behavior, but we understand it wrongly. We think, oh, this is good, when in reality it's not. And because of that, we live in this long-running enchantment, enchanted by the beliefs and values that we have ascribed to something that they don't really have. And so we're enchanted. We're just, we're just, as Ubuntu calls it, it's like it's a long-running hallucination that we call reality. This also is dangerous because if we're not seeing things as they really are, what are we relating to? Well, we're relating to a fantasy, an imagination, an enchantment, an illusion. Now, the the, the, the great power of, of practice is that it's very disillusioning. Now, usually when we think of disillusionment, we think, oh, I'm very disillusioned with you, or I'm very disillusioned with my what I thought was going to happen, and, and we feel kind of bad, like there's something wrong with it. But actually, if you look at the word disillusioning, or disillusionment, it's like, it means coming out from under illusion. Being disenchanted is actually the path to wisdom. Being disillusioned, being disenchanted with yourself, with each other, with the hallucination that we've been believing is the path of wisdom. Not only is are, are all of these torments rooted in delusion, but they're always accompanied by restlessness. I mentioned earlier today that restlessness in this context always refers to the thinking mind. So these torments are always accompanied by this agitated mind that is thinking, 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 often unconsciously, sometimes even consciously, but it's what constructs and maintains the illusion, is these thoughts. And so when the mind wanders off, whether you're aware of it and it's a fantasy or illusion, or it wanders off and you're not, and you're completely ignorant of it, these thoughts are spinning a web of unreality, not the way things really are, but how thoughts and words can enchant the mind. So, this restlessness, these restless thoughts that are just rampantly spinning their web of entrapment are the narrative of our life. The narrative of our life. It's who we think we are. Whether it's our personal history or it's our uh, psychological, emotional self-structure or our personality. And while that's maybe an experience, a momentary experience, or a recurring experience, it's not essentially who we are. Those are memories. They're habits. They're events in the mind that happen once, twice, well, two or three hundred thousand times. Nevertheless, it's not inherent in this being. Delusion, uh, restlessness, Sometimes they're accompanied by attachment. Attachment in the form of being identified with something. Attachment in the form of craving, wanting, yearning, longing, excitement, expecting, hoping for, uh, a sense of entitlement. All of these things are a form of attachment, a form of clinging, a form of holding on to some idea. Some idea about ourselves, some idea about the value of something some idea about how another is, and we hold on to this idea. And I talked earlier, um, I don't know, today, yesterday, about the, uh, the, the, the mind that just holds an idea, grips the mind, you know, the mind grips an idea, and holds on to this concept, you know, you're a good person, I'm a bad person, I'm a bad person, you know, it should be this way, it isn't this way, I want it to be that way. 
and the mind holds on to it, and it creates tension. Tension in the mind that's reflected as tension in the body. That's attachment. Sometimes they are accompanied by a delusion and restlessness are accompanied by aversion. Aversion can appear in many different forms, as we know. The most violent and the most Gro- the grossest forms are rage, anger, uh, striking out at by just being uh, abusive, verbally, physically. But aversion takes several other forms. Sometimes we internalize aversion in the form of self-averse. And we become frustrated, disappointed, uh, despairing, uh, self-judgmental, self-critical, depressed, uh, demeaning. And these are all ways of of aversion towards some behavior or some aspect or some experience that is very easily identified with as myself. And there's a third way, third form of uh, aversion, and that is just the pushing away. It's not the striking out at in, in, of rage, anger, hatred, and it's not the internalizing, but it's the pushing away through impatience, uh, fear, uh, irritation, being bothered by. When, 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 when we have that kind of relationship with things that just niggle and irritate us, we just you know, the mind is going, get away, get away. It's not hitting, striking out, and it's not internalizing. It's just not openly accepting and receiving this is the way it is now. And so we, we see these behaviors in our mind. You know, it's not, this is no secret. <laughs> I mean, we all, today, I know, no doubt, we've all cataloged dozens of different manifestations of aversion, desire, Fear, doubt, confusion, self-judgment, judging others, uh, feeling vulnerable, feeling overwhelmed, feeling entitled, feeling victimized, feeling all, all of them, because they, they we have a story that we believe about these experiences that somehow they reflect who we really are. They are so habitual, they're so recurrent that we think that it is essentially part of our self-structure. And because of that, we take them for granted. We have seen them so often that we now ignore them. We, we just believe, oh, this is the way I am. You know, a moment of impatience arises due, its, due to its causes and conditions, just as the moment of any other tormented state of mind. There are momentary causes and conditions that give rise to it. But when they recur frequently, and we have frequent experiences of impatience, for example, we begin to assume that I'm always impatient. And it is just a short, slippery slope from I'm always impatient to I'm an impatient person. And now not only have we eternalized a momentary experience of impatience to an eternity of I'm always impatient, We've identified it as an essential piece of myself, as a part of myself, of who I am. I am an impatient person. When that idea gets conditioned into the mind through lack of awareness, it it becomes a concept. It's no longer even a momentary experience of impatience. It is an enduring self-structure that we believe. And to now you can imagine how difficult it is going to be to remove that belief about yourself. Because we've experienced impatience dozens, hundreds, thousands of times, and we've solidified it, we've reified it into a solid place and behavior and a part of ourself. And so every time it arises, it just reaffirms this wrong assumption. And yet, this is the task that we face, is looking at these things and seeing, 
wait a minute, this is a momentary occurrence due to causes and conditions. The belief or the assumption that it is who I am or how I am or what I am is tenacious. It just jumps in there, takes over control, and we feel bummed out. We feel tormented. We feel like it's, it's impossible. So habitual, we make them into our personality, we're identified with this is who I am, we appropriate them as mine. Now, it is clear that they obstruct our ability to live life fully. Take fear, for example. Fear is a powerful force in our own life, in our collective life, as understood by politicians, economists, other political persuasions. It's just, fear is powerful. We are very susceptible to being manipulated by fear. And we do it to ourselves. We can be afraid of dogs, we can be afraid of public speaking, we can be afraid of other people. And because we have been afraid in the past, we have kind of turned away from or shut off the possibility of going in that direction of our life because we feel afraid. And so we don't go there. And slowly over the course of our life, as we have experienced pain and our fear of pain, we have cut off more and more of our human potential. And now we live in this little groove of what's comfortable, what doesn't cause us fear, and what feels, well, restrictive, but safe. And life, the fullness of human life, offers a lot more opportunity than that. If we're not controlled by and manipulated by fear. So fear, as a one of these torments of the mind, obstructs our ability to live life fully. And we might say the same thing about all kinds of aversion, and judgment, and depression, and, and just, we just live in this little box, or ambition, or attachment. You know, we just, we just get in a groove and it becomes who we are, when it's just a poor representation of what's possible as a human being. However, these torments are not a mistake. They don't arise uninvited. They arise due to causes and conditions. It is their natural expression to arise when the causes and conditions are there. So it's not a, it's not a mistake that we feel or that we are aware of any of these torments at any time. Because we can't control conditions. Things happen, you know, and we don't, we, we can't control other people, we can't control our own mind often. Uh, we can train it, but in a moment it, it can do most anything. So because they are a, uh, a dhamma, they're the way things have come to be, due to cause and conditions, they're a natural phenomena. They're not, a, there's nothing unnatural about them. You know, we might think, oh, it's too bad that we have to suffer this, that we have to feel this. It's unnatural. I don't want to feel, you know, so disgusted or so depraved or so brutal or whatever. It's not unnatural. It's natural when we understand the causes and conditions that give rise to it. And so because it is a natural phenomena, then we can observe it. And when we can observe it, we can learn about it. And if we observe it through mindfulness, we can understand it with wisdom, and wisdom is what removes it from the mind, or what allows us to have a different relationship to this set of conditions that would normally give rise to one of these torments. We can have a different relationship to it, to those conditions. So when the when the ignorance is in the mind, of course we don't see what's going on. And the mind can spin out all kinds of stories in the oblivion of delusion or just blindness. 
But sometimes when we see the story and ascribe value and meaning to something, we don't understand it correctly. So, it is mindfulness that sees what's going on. But it is wisdom that understands what's going on. So when we don't have wisdom, we just have some kind of awareness, but without wisdom, we look at something, and if there is desire in the mind, desire arises due to causes and conditions. One is unwise attention, and there are others. But when desire arises in the mind, whatever we're looking at, desire causes us to see only the pleasant aspect of it. That's what desire does. You look at this person, you look at this car, you look at this house, you look at anything. You look at this retreat and say, oh, this looks like a good idea. You know, I could go get calm and still and wicked and maybe get enlightened this time. Yeah, yeah, I want to do this retreat. Or something like that. And then, you know, after you get here and you've been here for a day, aversion enters the mind. You look at the same retreat and you say, this is disgusting. This is painful. This isn't what I want at all. This is like, what's wrong with this retreat? You know, it's like, it's not like I thought it was going to be at all. Another problem with retreat, it's always been this way. It had, it's, it's had its benefits and it's had its limitations. We just didn't see them. Because, well, when desire's in the mind, we just see the pleasant aspect of it. When aversion's in the mind, we see the unpleasant aspect of it. Same retreat. It's just that seeing through the lens of delusion and desire, it looks one way. Seeing through the lens of delusion and aversion, it looks another way. In both, in, and here's, here, here's the amazing trick of the mind, in both instances, we believe our thoughts. We believe it really is a good retreat, or we believe it really is a bad retreat. And we do that with people, events, experiences, the future, the past, each other, ourselves, and everything about us. We look, and depending on what has arisen in the mind, it looks totally desirable and good, or it looks totally undesirable and bad, through no fault of our own. Those conditions have arisen due to their own causes and conditions. If we don't see them with mindfulness, and if we don't understand them with wisdom, we'll be caught, we'll be ensnared, will be entrapped in the narrative of my life that's suffering due to these torments. Now, the Buddha understood this. The Buddha understood the, the nature of suffering. And in his articulation of the Four Noble Truths, you know, the First Noble Truth is there's suffering. Second Noble Truth is it's caused by craving. Craving, in this case, meaning craving or aversion two sides of the same coin. The third is that there is an end to craving, therefore an end to suffering. And the fourth is the path to be developed by each one of us to realize the end of suffering. And this Noble Eightfold Path is really comprised of three trainings. The first training is the training in sila, or living in harmony, an ethical life, and it is uh, you know, the, the practice of right speech, right action, right livelihood. But it essentially is mindfulness of intention before speaking or acting. That's the training. The training is to be mindful of our intention before speaking and acting so that we don't act out these tormented states of mind when they arise. So even if there is desire or aversion in the mind, we don't just blurt it out, we don't just act it out, we're practicing restraint. We're practicing mindfulness through restraint, noticing the intention is influenced by aversion or desire. And when we don't speak or act in the service of these tormented states of mind, we don't cause each other harm. That's the happiness. The happiness that comes from uh, sila, or practicing 
mindfulness of intention is that we don't intentionally and quite often don't unintentionally cause harm to one another. Physical harm, mental harm, emotional harm, financial harm. We're not deceiving, we're not, uh, you know, we're not taking advantage of other people, we're not spinning webs of stories that, that abuse other people in any way. But even though we're not acting it out by speaking or acting, our mind might still be pretty obsessed with what it wants to do. And the Buddha understood that we need another practice. Just, just being a good person in relation to others is not enough to free you from suffering. Because the mind is still tormented. Okay, so the Buddha offered a second training of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the training in mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is the training to calm the mind down. See things as they are, have a, have a more have a balanced relationship to it, not, not being obsessed by it, even when the mind is obsessed and you notice the obsession, it, it soothes the obsessed mind. Mindfulness soothes the obsessed mind. It might take some perseverance, but you can do it. And this is uh, you know, purification of the mind. It's, it's purifying the mind temporarily of these torments. Because if mindfulness is present, the torments cannot be present. They're mutually exclusive in the mind. If the torment is there, mindfulness is not. If mindfulness is there, none of the torments are. Now you might think, yeah, but wait a minute, I've been aware of my tormented mind. Actually, in the moment of being aware of a tormented mind, you're not, you're not caught in the delusion of the torment. You're aware of the torment, but you're not caught in the delusion of it. It's a subtle distinction, and it does take some persevering mindfulness to temporarily, but recognizably, overcome the power of these torments. Nevertheless, the mind is purified of these obsessive torments, and we get to enjoy the happiness of what's called seclusion, meaning the mind is secluded from the torments. Now, just imagine, today, if the mind had remained secluded from the torments. Okay. Phew, what a relief. But, you know what? Conditions change. <laughs> they, they change unavoidably and quickly and not always in our direction. And the Buddha understood that, wow, the potential to respond, to be entrapped, in any of these torments in the mind, or to act them out unconsciously, is pretty, the potential is always there. And so he offered a third training to address that. And the third training is the development of insight, understanding, wisdom. And through the development of wisdom, we come to understand the nature of these torments. We come to see how they are grow, what their condition, causes and conditions are for their arising. And we, we, we change, through, through careful observations, we change our wrong views, we change our wrong understanding through careful observation of the way things really are. And by doing that, we are able to remove the deluded assumptions and beliefs that we've been saddled with from the beginning of this time. Well, this is the practice of insight. But once we have cleared out, even to a little, to a, to a small degree, some of the wrong beliefs, wrong assumptions, misunderstandings that we have about ourselves, others, the way things are, the mind doesn't react out of or doesn't default to these obsessive or transgressive acting out states because it understands things differently. And this is the way that we actually uproot the potential to get ensnared 
by these traumas. We uproot it from the mind. It's as if we take the seeds and remove them. So the seeds are no longer in the mind. Or we uh, make them ineffective because of our understanding. So this is the, this is the path to be developed. The training in uh, mindfulness of intention that addresses the transgressive torments. Uh, the development of mindfulness that temporarily purifies the mind of the obsessive torments and insight which permanently uproots the latent torments from the mind. And this is the path that the Buddha uh, prescribed for all of us to realize for ourselves the end of suffering. So with this amount of right view and this possibility, how do we actually work with them in today and tomorrow and the rest of the retreat and the rest of our life? So the first element of beginning to work with these torments is to hear this kind of information about them. To be informed that these are dangerous states of mind, they are uh, powerfully conditioned, they're repetitive, they cause us suffering. And to hear that information, we can then begin to recognize them in our experience. Now, you would think, having heard of these torment states of mind, and having been tormented a lot today and probably some tomorrow too, you'd think it'd be easy to recognize them. But you know what? <laughs> we can hear fear, anxiety, depression, self-judgment, impatience, aversion. We can, we can hear all them. We recognize those words and we can still wallow in them and not recognize them in our own experience. I know. <laughs> I do it. So I know it happens. And what's, what's, what makes it so difficult is that we're so familiar with them, we don't recognize the, fam- the ordinariness of them. We take them for granted. We just assume this is the way it is. And it is the way it is, temporarily. It doesn't have to be that way, which we don't yet understand deeply. We'd like to believe it, but we, have, we don't experience it. So beginning to recognize them is the first step. If we don't recognize them in our own experience, you can't work on them at all. I mean, they, they, just, they just got your... and you're dragging you around. <clears throat> but the second step, or the second element in working with them is to relax. Don't beat yourself up just because you've now recognized that you're tormented. <laughs> Hello? That's not, that's, not the, that's not the next effective step. The next step is to, say, is to you know, have the courage to say, wow, I'm really suffering with this, this mental state. You know, self-judgment, fear, anxiety, uh, impatience, confusion, delusion, bewilderment, enchantment. I'm just, you know, desire. And sometimes it doesn't feel like suffering, and I'll get to that. But just to recognize it, and then to to have the courage, in some ways, to say, this is what's going on for me. You know, it really isn't okay. It really isn't. Now that's hard. It's hard to get to that place of accepting, I don't want to use the word accept, but acknowledging. Acknowledging. This is the way it is. Because, then we've got to do something about it. You know, and we don't often know what to do. Or we don't trust that we can, or have the capacity to. But still, relaxing is an acknowledgement that this is the way it is for me, for now. That's all. And you can just say, this is the way it is for me, for now. Sayadaw Tejaniya says, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. Meaning, 
what arises in the mind, you don't you don't get to choose. You know the mind. You know the mind can go anywhere at any time. It can pick up any any fantasy, any desire, any any disgusting, any any elaborate, any <laughs> anything at any time can come into the mind. But once it does, and, and that's 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 pointing to the fact that the mind's not yours. It's got a mind of its own. But once it does, you're responsible for it because if you don't deal with it effectively, it's really going it's going to bother you. It's going to really, you know, move you around in life. So our responsibility is not to struggle with them or to deny them or to avoid them or to minimize them. Our responsibility is to acknowledge and work with them in an effective way. Because these torments all arise with wrong attention. Because we're not paying careful attention. We're not paying wise attention. That's how they get established. Therefore, they are, we begin to work with them and we begin to lessen their impact by paying wise attention to them. But so often, isn't it our tendency to just avoid, deny, minimize, pretend it's not happening, uh, kind of distract ourselves from dealing with it, rather than look at it, turn to it, look at it, acknowledge it, work with it. We've learned how to avoid, how to deny, how to minimize, how to distract, how to replace it with something else, just not deal with it. Because they're all unpleasant. They're all unpleasant. And we might think, wait a minute, I'm thinking of my next vacation. That's not unpleasant. I like, I'm having a lot of fun thinking about, you know, imagining, you know. But desire is like this, you know, when you are under the influence of desire, what it is you're desiring is always pleasant. That's what you see. But the feeling of desire itself, unfulfilled desire, is really unpleasant. This, is, this gives us a key in how to work with some of these states of mind. So it's important to recall the knowledge of what the torments are and to relax, to just acknowledge, except we have the courage to acknowledge this is the way it is for me for now. The third element in working with them is to not act them out, to exercise some restraint. So often when we um, you know, are under the influence of one of these states of mind, one of these terminated states of mind, we want to just act them out. There's nothing like fulfilling your desire to get rid of your desire. Right? Or if you're really angry, you just, you know, you just kind of vent to the nearest person. There, now, it's, now they got your anger. You know, hey, it works, temporarily. And so, we try to get rid of our torment by acting them out. Satisfying them, denying them, giving them somebody else, acting them out in some way. But we need to exercise some restraint, because to act them out, or to deny them, only strengthens them. To pretend that they're not there, they just love that. They love that. They, they, they just eat it up and become stronger. So one way, or one way we, can, we can exercise restraint is to avoid those people, places, and behaviors that provoke these states of mind. You know, this, is a, this is an old 12-step you know, uh, intervention. Don't go there. You know, or is there some poet, I can't remember who it is, written this poem about, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood, don't go there alone. <laughs> <laughs> now what that means is, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood. There's all kinds of stuff in there that is dangerous to you. Don't go without your awareness and understanding. Don't just go wandering around in a kind of deluded, happy-go-lucky, you know, frame of mind, you'll get ambushed. So, avoid those people, places, things, behaviors that induce or condition those states of mind. Another is to, when, in the, you know, when entangled in all these states of mind, is to recognize it and replace it. Metta is a loving-kindness practice that, well-known, 
to be used when the mind is filled with some form of aversion. You have aversion towards someone or yourself. Practicing loving-kindness is a way of replacing the aversion with acceptance, acknowledgement, uh, love. It's a way of not getting caught, not, not acting it out. It kind of puts the brakes on it. And learning how to do that is really skillful. However, and I'm not speaking about metta, I, mean, I would never say, I would never give any indication that metta isn't a useful, skillful tool to have in your meditator's toolbox. But you can do an awful lot of spiritual bypassing by doing that. Not just metta. But we can, we can just elevate ourselves with our spiritual intentions and aspirations above the defilements, the, the torments. We just kind of do some practice, some self-forgiveness and some kind of self-imaging or affirmation that just doesn't deal with the issue. You have to be careful with that. How you use it. We were talking about that this morning. You know, when lust enters the mind, you know, I could just say, oh, yeah, the mind's aware. Hmm. Just kind of hover above it, not really deal with it. Spiritual bypassing. Insight would ask us to feel your way into it, not to indulge in it, but not to cut it off either, but to be fully aware of it, to really learn of its nature. We'll get to that. So when we exercise some restraint, then we're not just acting them out blindly, or we're not just feeding them through denial. After we have recognized them and we've accepted them, and we're not acting them out, we need to reframe our understanding because so often we feel like I can't practice awareness, I can't be mindful, I can't do it until I get rid of my fear. I can't be mindful until I get rid of this restlessness. I can't, be, I can't do my practice until I get rid of the sleepiness. You know, I can't do this practice because I'm so depressed. I gotta wait till I get undepressed, then I can do my practice. That's a wrong. Under- those are all wrong understandings. What? How we need to reframe our misunderstanding is that these are the very experiences upon which to develop awareness. So that means we have to actually be aware, have to acknowledge, and be aware of these states of mind when they arise. But just reframing our wrong view, wrong understanding, is an essential step. Otherwise, we think that somehow I've got to get rid of them, I can avoid them, and somehow work around them. You can't work around them. You can't avoid them. Not just hover above them, but actually reframe your understanding and, and to come to know that they are not the immovable obstacle that they appear to be, but rather they are the uh, a kind of a hidden opportunity to develop the mind beyond its current capacity. Again, Utejaniya says, try to recognize these torments. They're simply torments. They're not your torment. Every time you identify yourself with them or reject them, you're only increasing their strength. The wandering mind is not the problem. Your attitude that it should not be wandering, that's the problem. It's the aversion to the wandering mind. That's the problem. Thoughts are just thoughts. Feelings are just feelings. Yogis often make the mistake of expecting, or hoping for, good experiences, rather than being willing to work with the defilements, the torments. You know, so you, you know, a couple months ago you saw the advertisement, or six months ago you saw the advertisement or the announcement of the retreat. You said, hey, well, Stephen Alexis is going to be Cloud Mountain doing a retreat. That, that'd be nice. I'd, I'd like to go and kind of get a little refreshed, a little tune-up, and pretty good food there. And in the fall, it'll be pretty nice. Nice, nice. Let's go take a little, something like a holiday. Holiday and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and do a little meditation. Calm down, wake up, get enlightened, you know, love and peace and space and stuff like that. Really, 
How many of you actually said, hey, a retreat, you know, a cloud mountain, good. Seven days of dealing, facing the defilements. Yeah, yeah, I can get into that. We, we, don't, we don't think like that. We think, hey, it's going to be good. So, but Sarah says, you know, that's a mistake. It's a mistake to think that we're going to practice, you know, and get these, all the goodies without the work. The work is dealing with these torments. As long as you are aware of these torments, you're doing well, Utejaniya says. So, you have plenty of opportunities today to do really well. <laughs> okay. It's not fun, though, I know. It's not. So, we've, we've recognized these, these states of mind, or we begin to recognize them. We've uh, accepted them, the fact that we just, we're not just resisting and denying. Relax. Uh, we exercise some restraint, we don't just act them out, we reframe our understanding. This is an opportunity for developing awareness and understanding that we don't yet have. Okay, now what? Be mindful. What does be mindful mean? Be mindful, as we have repeated, <laughs> is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience as it happens. So when any of these torments arise in the mind, remember to recognize them as they happen. So what that means is, we don't just recognize them up here in our head and say, oh yeah, there it is, there's my anger. But we recognize, we feel into them. We're not not just telling our story about, telling ourselves a story about them or how we're uh, kind of so entangled in them or it's really who I am. We feel into them so that we so that we can feel the we can receive their nature. What is the nature of fear? What is the nature of desire? What is the nature of self judgment? What is the nature of anxiety? What's the nature of depression? Because we know these words and we have you know, we see the tip of the iceberg, that's how we begin to recognize them, but we need much more information about them. And so mindfulness is getting close to, it's getting intimate with, to feel into and to receive the, the flavor of each of these states of mind. And that's what mindfulness does. You know, we talk about being open, receptive, allowing, receive, so that you understand, so that, I don't want to say understand, so that you know the taste of this mental state. Now, I have to admit, they're all unpleasant. They're all unpleasant. You know, fear, really unpleasant. Depression, unpleasant. Impatience, unpleasant. Desire, unpleasant. All forms of frustration, unpleasant. Disappointment, unpleasant. Grief, unpleasant. Loss, sadness, jealousy, envy. Take your pick. They're not fun. But you know what? We've been experiencing unpleasantness all our life. Right? We've all, we've all experienced a tremendous amount of unpleasantness. Physical unpleasantness, emotional unpleasantness, mental unpleasantness. What have we to fear? What have we to fear? Been there, done that. All I'm asking you to do is turn and look at, with full awareness, acknowledgement, acceptance, this is what it actually feels like. Not just what the story is about it, but what does it actually feel like? Because it's in that direct and immediate empirical knowledge of the feeling of these mental states that we're going to realize something vital and important. So we receive the taste, we receive the flavor, we we hold our nose and kind of get the taste of this really unpleasant experience. And what happens? We realize something. First of all, we, we, we definitely realize it's unpleasant. Right? It, it's not satisfactory at all. It's not satisfying, it's not satisfactory, it's really miserable. Okay? The second thing we realize is it doesn't last very long. Now, you, can't, you can take my word for it, but that doesn't do the job. You actually have to experience for yourself 
that if you have the courage and you have the steadiness of mind to actually hang in there with this feeling, it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. And you stop resisting it and you just allow it, you'll see it doesn't last very long. Now that's an, in, that's an interesting piece of information for you. But it can be an insight if you are willing to endure the unpleasantness. Because when you, when you endure it with acceptance, I don't mean endure it like grit your teeth and pretend it's not there. I mean fully accept and acknowledge this is the way it is. Feel it. You'll see. It doesn't last long. It's a, it's a vibrating... You know, it's, it's conditional. It's there because of conditions. And one of the conditions that allows it to be there is you're not willing to look at it. You're not willing to feel it. And as soon as you remove that condition by a willingness to be there with it, it disappears. It, it, you, you've cut off its uh, life supply in a, in a way. Because now you're not afraid. You're not, you're not acting it out. You're not manipulating it. You don't have any illusions about it. You're not enchanted by it. You're just willing to say, what's going on here? And they can't stand that. They disappear. They, they, they shrink in the light of awareness. They can only persist in the dark of delusion. So mindfulness, this ability to recognize what's happening, what's going on, is the light of awareness. And with this light of awareness comes understanding. And the understanding is of, of, of two dimensions. The first dimension is we understand the true nature of these states of mind. We understand what they feel like, we understand how they arise, we understand what they do to the mind, because we've, we've seen them. They've tortured us, tormented us. They've just bothered us for endlessly. And we also understand something about their nature, their inherent nature is that they're, they're, they're unsatisfying, they're incapable of satisfying our sense, unsatisfying, incapable of satisfying us. They arise due to conditions, causes and conditions that are mostly outside of our control, and they don't last very long. These three understandings are universal to all of these tormented states of mind. They're the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and impersonality, or conditionality. It's these understandings, which if we see over and over again that this is how these states of mind really are, it will change our understanding of experience. Not just in this moment, but permanently. And we'll no longer look for happiness in all the wrong places. We'll no longer look for security. We'll no longer look for unchanging stability. These understandings are profound. They change our, they change our inner structure, I guess you'd have to say. Because they're not just changing the experience. We're not just getting rid of a momentary experience of fear. We're undermining the assumptions and the beliefs, the wrong beliefs that we have about fear. And when you now know something is true because of your own experience of it, who is going to take that away from you? How are you going to forget that? You know it's true. You've experienced it. Nobody can convince you otherwise. That kind of truth has a, has a that kind of insight and truth has a liberating and long-lasting effect. This is not a belief that we read in a book. We can read it in a book. That doesn't change anything. It's the understanding that comes from our own deeply personal experience we've seen for ourselves through our own body and mind and, and momentary experiences and we've understood things correctly. They don't last. They're unsatisfying. They're impersonal. Conditional. These are the understandings that free the heart from the potential of reacting or getting ensnared 
in any of these torments. Use the appearance of the torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature. Feel your way into them. They are natural phenomena. They are not your torment. Everyone experiences them. When there is attachment or aversion in the mind, always make that the object of your observation. Don't try to avoid objects and experiences. Try to avoid getting entangled in the torments, in a tormented relationship to them. As long as you are aware of these torments, you're doing well. In order to under, understand these torments, you have to watch them again and again, Sayadaw says. What can you gain from just having or expecting a good experiences? If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle these torments, meaning once you're willing to experience these torments, good experiences, good dhammas, will naturally follow. Remember, it's not you who removes these torments from the mind. Wisdom or understanding does. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down.